Hello and welcome to episode one of Linux After Dark. I'm Joe. I'm Chris. I'm Gary. And I'm Dalton. So here we all are on a brand new show, but it's not that new, is it? This is essentially just carrying on what we were doing with Late Night Linux Extra. Yeah, and some people really seem to like it, so we figured let's keep doing it. Yeah, exactly. And so we're part of the Late Night Linux family. That's what uh, I'm calling it. But uh, this is going to be in the all episodes feed. So there'll be Late Night Linux, the main show, Late Night Linux Extra, which will carry on. And this will all be in the all episodes feed. So that's really the easiest way to subscribe to the show. But it will have its own individual RSS feed as well. This episode is going to be released on the Monday. But then after that, it's going to be every other Friday. So it's going to be almost three weeks until the next episode of this. But if you subscribe, then it'll just show up in your player when it's released and you'll be fine. So I've got a good question for you today. You're all younger than me. And so that got me thinking, what does Linux and open source look like in the future, in the next 10 years, 20 years, and 30 years plus? On the desktop, on the server, the whole thing, where are we going to be? This is quite a difficult one because I often think about this because my particular journey with Linux is around about a decade, maybe a bit less. And it's hard to tell whether the improvements I notice are happening in a bit of a bubble because I try to remind myself to take a step back. I'm talking about desktop Linux, I guess, more because I think that the server side is a bit different. But for desktop Linux, it feels to me like loads of improvements and gains have been made, but I'm not sure whether that actually bears out in the number of users that there are, certainly in the percentage of desktop users that are using Linux that, you know, if we jump up to 2% in a Steam survey or whatever, then it's a cause for excitement. So if we take that forward another 10 years, one thing I'm really interested about is when Windows 11 becomes compulsory, basically 2025, if Microsoft stick to their guns and there's now talk of games developers needing the same requirements as Windows 11 for anti-cheat, etc., I'm very interested that's going to be, you know, in a five-year marker. I can't see everyone buying new computers, but I also can. So I guess I'm not sure. <laughs> like The optimist on one shoulder says, oh, this is great. Everyone's going to really adopt Linux because they're going to be like, yeah, stick it to Microsoft. Let's just use something else. But the other shoulder's like, no, they're just going to buy a new computer because a pop-up comes up from Microsoft telling them to. Yeah, that seems like the more likely option. I mean, how many people do you know that actually buy like high-end computers that can last more than five years? And then after that would not buy another one in five years. That's about the same spec. Yeah, that was going to be my question to you, Chris, because you're probably a bit closer to it than I am. Say the 8th gen Intel CPUs are two or three years old at this point, right? And how many people do you see in five years using a machine that's seven, eight years old? Or are people going to have cycled out those sixth, seventh gen Intel machines by then? Like people outside of, you know, us enthusiasts who are probably using much older machines and still eking a bit of life out of them. By the time a machine's seven years old, it's probably passed it in most end users' lives anyway, right? Yeah, I I guess you're right, because if I think about now, if I'm getting refurb business machines, there's that weird plateau before the eighth gen where they put more physical cores on the chips that are in laptops, because I mostly deal with laptops. 
I try and advise people to sort of not get older than fifth gen. And that's the very oldest you should go. And if possible, try to get an eighth gen anyway, because that was the first time in a while that there'd been a leap in performance. So I guess that's true. If the deadline for upgrading was a bit sooner, I think there might be a larger window of adoption where people are like, well, I haven't had this computer for that long, but because it's a 2025 sunset, then I guess, but I'm, I'm interested to see how it plays out. Yeah. Cause I mean, I guess when you, we see at desktop Linux as well, right? We're talking about traditional desktop Linux, whereas from what I see in the desktop world, that trajectory for desktop Linux is, I mean, we've said it before, right? It's moving towards things like Chromebooks, which are technically Linux, but much more approachable for the average J. I guess maybe if you speak to people from previous generations, because let's not forget, we had the anniversary of Linux. It's not that old. The idea that there's so many embedded devices that are running Linux. So they're not server, they're not desktop, but a hell of a lot of like TV boxes and black box things that you get given by various service providers have it in. So I guess you're right. Like Chrome OS is kind of a version of that. Most of the people that pick it up would never even think or realize that it's Linux in the same way that I have an example of the French ISP free, free .fr. They issue boxes that run on Linux. Their router is running Linux underneath, but not every customer is going to be like, oh, I, I run a Linux router. They, they just use the box they get given. Yeah. And I guess we see this hiding of open source mirrored in the server world, right? You get things like uh, ManageDB. That might be running MariaDB and it is running some form of Linux underneath, but people don't realize that it's Linux and they don't really care, right? They just want a connection string that they put in and they connect to a DB or things like a search service. Of course, that's running on a, a Linux VM somewhere behind the scenes, but it's very hidden away from people. It's almost like Linux is slowly becoming this utility in those type of, you know, like you said, in your set-top box and router scenario and in Chromebooks, Linux is just an implementation detail, it feels like, and it seems to be going more and more that way. Is this the TiVoization that uh, everyone was afraid about around like 2006 to 2010? <laughs> it could well be. Yeah. Is that it? <laughs> is this what happens? Eh, that's not so bad, I guess. Even in the enterprise world, right? You've got things like, you know, in AWS, you get Lambda functions like this serverless compute. And all you do is you write your Node.js or your Python application and you just upload the source code. And of course, that's running in a container behind the scenes that's clearly on Linux, but you don't have to worry about the fact that it's Linux. You write your code and someone else who cares about it being Linux cares about that in the same way as a set-top box or router or, like you say, a TiVo back you know, 10, 15 years ago. It would be nice to be optimistic about it if, parallel to that, there is the ability to continue doing your own thing with these things. And I think about kind of unlocking the bootloader of a phone or like you have the possibility if you want to perhaps with you know having to type in caps yes i know what i'm doing three times over and pressing enter but i i i wouldn't like to lose that aspect of it parallel to it so that you could ssh into things that are running linux that the vast majority of people want handed to them on a plate but i'd like to think that 
there's always going to be that's why i like watching the m1 mac being reverse engineered or i've always liked going way back buying things that are supposedly black box products i remember having like a western digital network drive that you could flash custom firmware on it's always having the possibilities to to do that i would hope regardless of how the manufacturers time tilt things and with the right to repair maybe there's enough pushback now that there's going to be like an envelope that you can push to continue to use the things that we enjoy because i mean speaking for myself that's what i enjoy i i i like being given something and like oh it does this and then i go or did you know it also does this, 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 and this? And that's the enjoyment I personally get out of it. And that's what I hope that we, we wouldn't lose. And at the moment, that still exists, right? Say, I've mentioned before that I run some of my storage at home on a Synology box, and I can SSH into that and get to the underlying Linux OS. And that's one of the reasons I'm somewhat comfortable using it. I think similarly, the VPS isn't going away, right? You're probably still going to be able to spin up a Linux box and do stuff by hand yourself. And even Microsoft have backtracked a bit with Windows 11, right, where they've said enthusiasts will be able to install this on old hardware. Say, so I think there will still, as long as people fight for it, or you know, certainly are aware that it's a possibility, be the ability to do that stuff. And that's the beauty of open source, right? A lot of these products that are using Linux behind the scenes clearly are not. But as long as there is people fighting for it and there is an enthusiast market like, you know, the four of us here, I can't see completely not being able to run a Linux server and be able to do what you want with it. Oh, yeah, you uh, bootloader locking that. I forgot about that for a moment. Oh, no. Yeah, that's actually getting worse because now we're getting, you know, regulatory things like California's device lockdown rules, radio lockdown in the EU, which hasn't gone into effect, but has gone into effect, but no one knows how to enforce it. So it hasn't gone into effect, making sure that the software that's shipped with the device stays on the device is kind of a big deal. And it costs more to make that unlockable than it does to just keep it locked forever and, you know, screw you. What does that mean for GNU slash Linux on phones then? Like what you do, Dalton? We're going to have to see what happens with like the upcoming Pixel 6 with like Google's own chips and whatever, because that'll set the tone going forward, I think. But even Chromebooks, as they get more difficult to, you know, just toss Mr. Chromebox's firmware on or... Oh, man, I didn't consider that for when you asked the question. Uh, it's something I've always had an eye on, but I just didn't put two and two together there. The nice thing is that there are hardware vendors that cater to enthusiasts, you know, like this framework laptop I've got sitting here now. There's always going to be like that little market, whether it be Fairphone or Pine64 or whoever else or whatever making those devices that are like, hey, this is a little more open than the rest, and that's a selling point. And you're going to pay more, but you're going to get what you want too. Yeah, I guess it then becomes more niche because it kind of removes that discoverability element that we spoke about on the show before where you know we all had not a very good computer and decided to install Linux on it, where if there was a locked down bootloader and the only way for me to get Linux on a machine was to go and buy an XPS developer edition or a Pinebook or you know, Fairphone or something like that, the barrier to entry is then much, much higher because when I first got into Linux, I didn't have eight, 900 quid to go and spend on a machine. 
I had what I had. And that was the whole reason I used Linux in the first place. We're kind of seeing it come around with like Termux on Android and, well, nothing on iOS because they keep batting down those apps. But it's not really the same, is it? It's just being able to, I mean, I put Ubuntu 20 or 10.04 on like some core duo machine and that isn't going to be a thing going forward, it seems like. All right. What about longer term then in the next 20 or 30 years or even beyond that? By the time you lot are all getting old and thinking about retiring, where are we going to be at that point? I dread to think. My hope is that these kind of things like Secure Boot Wars 10 years ago continue to not take off. But yeah, like Dalton said, with new laws and regulations coming in, it's very difficult to predict where that might go. Yeah, I think there's going to be waypoints along the way that we can see some of at the moment. There's still this rumbling NVIDIA acquisition of ARM, which, whether we like it or not, I I feel like is the next paradigm that we're going into. And I would worry if, if that doesn't get blocked or handled well, where that takes us in terms of like, I don't think x86 is going to die overnight, but if we're talking about 20 or 30 years, then those kind of waypoints could be key as we look back over how things have changed. It's incredibly <laughs> difficult to predict because you're basically jumping the whole lifetime of Linux by going that far yeah. ahead. Yeah. <laughs> we go back from this point in time today and the amount of stuff that has changed. Like I couldn't have told my teenage self that the iPhone was coming. And if you if you look at the history with Nokia, I think I've discussed this with you before, Dalton, on Telegram, like Nokia just had no idea that the iPhone was going to be what it was going to be. They, they were given a prototype of a similar device and they were like, no one's going to buy this. The battery life is too short. The touchscreen doesn't compensate for that. People want a long battery life and a phone you can throw at the wall. And suddenly the iPhone just smashed their profit margins up <laughs> and they were like call that guy that came in with the iphone type thing and it was too late and that's not that long ago that that happened that really isn't it's not the, the late what 2000 2007 yeah yeah something like that right and i think we're in one of those big kind of events now right with vendor lock-in and stuff in the cloud i see in my day job more and more people wanting to use cloud provider x's serverless thing or you know use this specific type of storage or use this data analytics thing that's completely closed to that cloud provider and i think that's one of those stages where you know historically you would have run some open source tool on a linux box to do that stuff and people seem to be willingly walking into not doing that stuff in a way that allows them to port their data out or you know move those workloads easily to something else which is deeply concerning just imagine how bad it's going to be when fuchsia is the base of all of that and not linux it's already hard enough to get a linux kernel running on some arm device that isn't already in the mainline kernel that i think that's basically irrelevant i mean even if all the drivers are around for a device it's still a bunch of configure everything together and mess with all of these like quirks that this single board has that none of the other boards have so that it actually works correctly because everyone in Android just throws a software hack at it and doesn't open source it and there you go. So I don't think Fuchsia's really going to change the status quo that much. Yeah, and I do fear that longer term it's going to become difficult to upstream all of these patches. 
when does it get to the point where Linux becomes very bloated and large because of all of these patches to run on different boards with different SOCs that it just doesn't become viable to maintain those? We're already at a point where x86 32-bit is being pulled out of certain distros because it's hard enough to build two versions just of x86. So does it get to the point where mainline support for the Pi 1 or Pi 2 gets pulled or certain versions of boards, just the support for those gets pulled out of the kernel because it's unmaintainable longer term? When I think back to some of the things you said about vendor lock-in and things, I'm thinking back to like quite a while ago in terms of things like web hosting, for example. If you think about web hosting for a lot of people as a kind of not high tier professional, but generally for a long time now, people have used cPanel, for example, which you can install yourself and put a license on a VPS if you want or bare metal. Um, and that makes migration very, very easy. But prior to that, you'd end up with... GeoCities. Oh, well, <laughs> GeoCities, yeah. But a lot of people would host with the ISP. Now, I have some clients that have stuck with that model because they don't know any better. And they come to me and say, my website is terrible for my small business. And I say, well, yeah, because you're using the exact infrastructure that you would have used when AOL posted CDs out to people. <laughs> so we need to move forward. We need to find a standardized platform that allows you to migrate between different hosts, which, and th that has gone in peaks and troughs. So when you call those very old behemoth ISPs that run web hosting, that's terrible, they won't give you the information you need. And there's been no adequate records kept. So you've had that situation for a while. Like for some web hosting, porting it from a proprietary vendor platform to cPanel can be an absolute pain. And then we got to the point where cPanel became quite standardized. For example, if you're doing shared hosting and you're not doing every single jigsaw piece, but then that's gone wrong now because they've been acquired multiple times over. And now the current company that owns them just randomly throws the prices up. So everyone's moved to direct admin, which is a licensed piece of software that you can you can run. But I'm hopeful that in the same way that that goes back quite a long time, that these cycles continue to happen so that when someone says, right, we're doing it like this now, there's still enough of a wave of sentiment that people say, no, we're not. We're going to do it this way. And we're going to work hard until we work out how we do it this way so that we don't have to do it that way. That's why I remain optimistic, but also pessimistic at the same time, because the idea of large cloud providers scooping up things and, and infrastructure changing from more of a decentralized infrastructure to this centralized one is not necessarily something I would have foreseen coming. And I think that backdrop does potentially make me pessimistic more when I think about it too deeply, basically, that that makes me a bit more pessimistic. But like, we've gone through this before, haven't we? From like hobbyists with tiny computers to the giant behemoths that you dial into back to your tiny home computers again, back to Amazon. <laughs> so there's no reason to think that it won't transition back to everyone's decentralized again. But when? How? It's the same way I feel about the conservatives running the United Kingdom. <laughs> like It feels like it's going to go on forever, but I really hope that one day it ends. And surely it has to. <laughs> like We can't just carry on this way. You can't just keep paying more and more national insurance. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. You can send in your feedback. Show at linuxafterdark.net is the email. But until next time in a couple of weeks then, I've been Joe. I've been Chris. I've been Gary. And I've been Dalton. See you later.